0: Gnostics, weirdos, weirdos, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing?
1: I'm I'm good my. it's it's been a uh uh it's been a rough week defending uh, rough week but fruitful week uh defending freedom I guess is probably the best best way to put it right
0: Well that that's it's always good if you if you feel like it's been at least a, a fruitful week I know I've, <laughs> I I've been away from this show for a few weeks and it's been a rough week for for me my uh many many folks know I I'm a big time dog person and Ernie my uh aging lab and kind of my best guy there he nearly died he has this thing called hemorrhagic gastroenteritis, which is every bit as awful as it sounds. And after just three days in the emergency vet hospital and all kinds of different antibiotics, poor guy, I got him home and he had six different areas on him that were shaved for IV ports. And so uh, it was uh, it was a near miss. And that just sort of Put me into a, a bit of a you know, it was it was it was a very rough time. So it was good that uh, I, I had Trey, you, and Trey and Ken to, to take over the show because I was in I was in pretty bad shape, and so was Ernie. But uh, everything is everything is doing uh, much better, much better now. So I am ready to get back uh, right get back to the show though though I've decided that in honor of of Ernie this week the the picture that goes with uh, you know on the website with every uh, with every week's episode it's going to be a recovered Ernie picture just because tribute to Ernie there you go tribute to yeah. tribute to Ernie so anyway um, uh, before we before we get going we want to thank our newest supporters John and Darren thank you guys very much and of course when you are a patreon supporter you get that second full-length bonus episode every week and also various other things at other levels of support and to check it all out just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and if you would like to get that weekly bonus show but you're just not in the place where you can afford to financially support us right now totally understandable happy to help you out just send me an email mike at politicsguys.com and i will get you set up with that bonus episode and also if you're just anti-patreon for whatever reason you can also support us through paypal and on venmo we're at politicsguys and check out those options just go to politicsguys.com slash support so today we have a lot to talk about the Recently passed infrastructure bill and the status of Build Back Better, Tuesday's elections, of course, uh, oral arguments in two big Supreme Court cases, Senate Republicans filibustering the John Lewis voting rights bill. And if we have time, maybe some listener questions and comments that will be more than enough for two full-length episodes for sure. But before we get started with any of that, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Okay, Jay. You know, I, uh, one thing I wanted to get into just very quickly before we get started. A couple of weeks ago, you were on the show with Trey, and you mentioned a story about uh, Kissinger and and Joe and Jean-Lat. Did I get that pronunciation yes. right? I think um, Joe and Law. Joe and
1: yeah, There you go. They always change it on you. Right? Yeah, but you make, they make themselves sound smarter. Yeah,
0: and yeah. you yeah, know, you you mentioned that that story is uh, apocryphal, right? And it reminded me of a of a great phrase I wanted to share with the folks I came across. uh, uh, It's Italian. Uh, It's called, uh, the phrase is ben trovato, and it means characteristic or appropriate, even if not true. And and I love love that phrase, and I I like to share it with whoever I can, because it's even better, I think, than apocryphal, because, of course, apocryphal stories can be characteristic or not. But that seemed to me to be very ben trovato, and I wanted to pass that. Passed it along, you know, so I like that. Yeah, I I I thought you might actually. So anyway, uh, Ben Travato aside, we'll we'll get started with, well, the very late breaking news. Late Friday night, House Democrats finally pushed through their smaller but still huge part of their ambition vicious agenda by passing the trillion dollar infrastructure bill in a 228 to 206 vote with 13 republicans joining democrats and six progressive democrats refusing to support the measure now this was previously passed by the senate in a 69 to 30 vote and so now it goes to president biden who will very quickly sign it into law. And as we discussed before, it provides $550, $550 billion in new funds over uh, a decade for roads, bridges, the power grid, and internet infrastructure, as well as around $47 billion in resiliency funding to help deal with the effects of climate change. And this vote came after, well, a very long and contentious dispute in the Democratic Party between centrist and the progressive wing with enough progressives finally giving way and supporting the infrastructure bill before a vote on that significantly larger Build Back Better legislation. And earlier in the day, Speaker Pelosi seemed to think that, according to her secret speaker's whip count, she had the votes to pass both bills. But centrist Democrats refused to support Build Back Better until they saw official cost estimates from the CBO. And that's going to take a couple of weeks. But then after receiving assurances from the moderates that they would support Build Back Better if the CBO's estimates were in line with unofficial estimates from the White House, the way was essentially cleared for that infrastructure vote. And so while the the prospects, I think, from my view, for build back better, uh in a significantly slim down, it's $1.7 trillion. It's weird to call that slim down, right, Jay? But it is. I mean, from from the original. I, I think the the prospects look increasingly good in the house. There's still that key question of, of course, what will Manchin and to a somewhat lesser extent cinema go for? Because And this brings in Tuesday's elections know, in the aftermath of the elections, Manchin seemed to draw the conclusion that Democrats need to do less. Uh, He had an interview with Fox, uh, Brett Baer from Fox News, and he said, I hope it's a wake up call for all of us. I'm concerned. I've been talking about our debt. I've been talking about inflation. I've been talking about the fallout we may have from that spending from those spending bills and. Mm -hmm. Even maybe more ominously, uh, when he asked if – when he was asked by Bayer if he thought the Democratic Party had essentially left him behind, he said – I'm a West Virginia Democrat, but I don't know. I don't know where maybe I belong at times, but I believe I'm fiscally responsible and socially compassionate. And you know what? I have a lot of... Dem- that's like me, Mike. Uh, that's what I was thinking, you know? Uh, exactly. But, but before you draw too much from that, a few weeks ago, he told reporters that, you know, this idea that he would leave the Democratic Party were, in his words, bullshit with a capital B. And he said that M- M- McConnell has tried to get him to... Come over to the Republican Party a number of times, but that he couldn't do it mentioned that is couldn't do it because he felt he was too far from Republicans on taxes and uh, health care. So, um, you know. That's kind of where we're at at this point, Jay, with both of these pieces of legislation. So why don't we start with the one that actually passed and very shortly, likely by the time a lot of listeners that are hearing this, will actually be law, the, uh, the infrastructure bill. What What are your thoughts on this, on this week in Democratic infighting and uh, some progress, at least for them?
1: Well, it looks like they finally took my advice, doesn't it? Uh, remind I, listeners, yeah. Obviously, uh, no. I th- I'm trying to was, was it you was it when I was on with Trey or when I was on with you that you know we raised the the issue of or the the idea of look if you've got one one uh, very large uh, infrastructure bill um, something that I, you know I can still quibble on on while wow, that's spending a lot of money and there are a lot of things that are seemingly to, to be counted as infrastructure that. Uh, most people wouldn't really consider infrastructure, um, and the sheer number of it, you would think this would be sort of like a uh, this would have been like a dream of the the uh, Clinton administration, um, which is saying something. Uh, but uh, you know they had that in hand, and they've had that in hand since uh, early in the summer. Um, you know there was there was this ludicrously goofy idea of well, we have to tie the two together. Um, and it just didn't work and and you know they could have gone forward with this they had the votes um, and yet their, their their progressive caucus sort of hijacked them uh, and and left them doing this uh, look looking silly I guess for for quite a while uh, and they still don't have what they want so this was um, this was a loss for the progressive caucus uh, it was a victory for sanity and uh getting sort of half a loaf and uh you know fighting one uh, playing playing one game at a time. Um so I I I, I think it's well, you know, again, on policy grounds, uh I can certainly object to uh some things in that bill. Uh but there's also some things that I think I like and I think that are needed, right? We need to have infrastructure. We need to do uh improvements on on that. Uh, those types of things. And there are going to be other things like, you know, bri- a more broadband internet uh, access that is maybe not necessarily uh, your traditional uh, roads and bridges infrastructure, but I would say is 21st century infrastructure and, and is, is necessary. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't hate the bill. I don't love it. Um, uh, but I, I, I do love that uh, this is sort of going, going the the route of, of, of sanity, if you will, rather than um, tying, you know, saying here, here is a one, let's call it moderate infrastructure bill, but you know we only we only vote on it unless you uh, pass the the immoderate um, Build Back Better bill.
0: Yeah, you know, and I think obviously anything that gets uh, 69 votes in in the Senate in this today's polarized environment, there's obviously a lot going for it certainly that's a that's definitely bipartisan and you know even in, even the house vote was at least somewhat bipartisan with those with those 13 uh, almost all kind of centrist republicans joining joining democrats so yeah i think that you know if we pull back and say well who's it a win for i think it's a win for the country as a as a general thing you know it's it's nice to see legislation passing like this now now Pulling back and looking at that, you know, you said the tying it to the tying it to the uh, build back better legislation was ludicrous, and I see what you're saying, but it's it's hard, I think, sometimes to separate. What's kind of posturing and negotiating stances from what people actually who are making those are taking those positions actually expect the final result to be? It's it's, you know, any sort of bargaining, you start from those sort of more extreme positions and kind of work your way. Back to something, and so I think there's a lot of that, and the media has focused an awful lot of attention on these bills as as it should have, right? Because they are enormous pieces of legislation. But a lot of the sausage making stuff, I, I you know, I've I've said from the beginning that this is this is the pretty standard type stuff, and in the end, I think it's not going to matter a whole heck of a lot. And that's still how I feel about this.
1: Well, see, I, I differ with you on the the standard. I mean, from a procedural standpoint, the idea of tying uh, one, uh, again, bill with bipartisan uh, support, and, and we'll call it a, a moderate bill, um, uh, having that in, in quotes. But, um, you know, this this kind of happened, and this is, you know, I think a lot of Republicans were resentful, rightfully so. Um, when, after this passed the Senate, uh, Biden said, okay, uh, great, congratulations, you know what? I'm not going to sign this unless you pass the other thing too. Um, Now he backtracked on that, but but the House the House uh, took him uh, literally, if not seriously, um, and 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 went forward with this tying the two bills together. And if the idea is, well, look, uh, the country moving forward and compromising on areas of bipartisan agreement is a good thing, uh, then then this strategy of saying, okay, we will. Uh, agree to the reasonable bipartisan uh, piece uh, but only if <laughs> if you agree to the uh, uh, the outside ludicrous uh, leftist piece uh, that seems to defeat that 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 purpose right
0: no i, I don't agree i don't agree at all because i never I, again i i guess i'm rejecting your premise uh okay. i i never thought that the uh, that the progressive caucus was going to just walk away from either of these two things. And again, it this is the sort of thing that maybe in a previous time well, they have, didn't they didn't have
1: to walk away. I'm saying listen, you pass one bill and then then you pass another.
0: Yeah, but the concern is that you pass one bill and then you lose your you lose a lot of your leverage. And so they were just trying to extract as much leverage as they could. Uh, out of the situation. And given the fact that there are such razor thin margins, those few those few people, those few votes, they can those folks can have uh, an increasing you know, amount of leverage. And so I think actually that the fact the fact that it looks to me like by the end of the year, we're going to have in fact, by the end of November, I'm betting we're going to have well, maybe by the end of the year, we're going to have both of these pieces of legislation. Given the fact that there is such a slim majority for the Democrats in the House and really just a tie in the Senate, I think that is really impressive. And the Democrats should get will be able to look back and say, wow, we did an awful lot with with, uh, you know, not a lot of room for error.
1: Well, we'll we'll see. Um, Although, again, the progressive demand uh, from the beginning was. Uh, no infrastructure bill uh, unless and until Build Back Better is passed, and they've they've lost that. If this was about leverage, they've they've lost that fight. Um, uh, to me, again, that was always a fight they were going to lose. But
0: well, no, see, I, I'll, um, I'll 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 argue with you on that because I think that that the most that they could get in the end, they realized the most they could get was a commitment from those centrists who were holding it up. And the commitment was, well, as long as the CBO estimates are in line with the white house estimates, we will vote for this. And that was, that was the most they could get. They extracted the most they could get. And sure. It's a, it's a loss in the sense that if if they had their way, it would be three, four, five, six, seven trillion $7 trillion. But you know, the the, the fact of the matter is the math is the math and the votes are the votes. And uh, you know, I was uh, there was a uh, uh, centrist Democrat, I believe from Virginia, I think, who uh, in the House who said, you know, people didn't elect Joe Biden to be FDR. But, of course, progressives hoped he would be FDR. But, I mean, essentially they're right is that, you know, there aren't those kind of majorities There isn't that kind of broad based national support. And while that might play really well in AOC's or, or J-PAL's district or Bush's district, the fact of the matter is there's just not enough overall support in the country to, to make this to make that sort of thing happen. And so to me, the system is working exactly like it should and sure, that the, the sausage making process is messy, but that's that's OK. So
1: the the difficulty they have there is though there's still no guarantee in the Senate. No.
0: And uh, Which, yeah, again, I mean, plan, like, yeah. plan,
1: plan a plan a was everything gets passed first and then yeah. um, infrastructure gets passed. Right. Yeah. Senate, Senate passes build back better house passes it. Then Senate passes it. Then house passes infrastructure.
0: Yeah. And, and my sense was plan a, my sense of things is that again, that, that, there's going to be something that will be. I mean, there have been negotiations this past week, and Mansion and Cinema haven't come out and said, "Well, we, we clearly support this." They still have concerns, and I think they're trying to extract as much leverage as they can. Understandably, so Cinema uh, is kind of a weird case. I. I He's yeah an odd individual, I think, in a lot of ways. But in terms of Manchin, you know, he he gets a lot of heat. And uh, even on our Facebook group, uh, listeners have, have said things like, well, you know, Manchin is the, the worst, just this awful senator, the worst senator. Uh, there was a, a progressive podcast that he's the worst, worst person in the U.S. Senate. It's like I'm. I geez, I've, have you have you met you know Holly and and Cruz but I understand their disappointment but you got to look at it from Manchin's standpoint right I mean it's amazing I think that there's a democratic US senator from West Virginia in the first place and, and honestly yeah. as a democrat I'm happy for whatever votes Joe Manchin can give my party and my party's priorities and his party as well and Honestly, I I expect that behind closed doors, both Manchin and Democratic Party leaders have decided where they're going to play up differences between the two as much as possible, because that's only going to help Manchin back home. Hmm. I don't you you know. don't, you I don't, don't know think that, that you don't think that Joe Manchin in a state that Trump won by, what, 30 something percent, a state that, that in his last election, he barely squeaked through. You don't think he's saying to to Democrats, other Democratic leaders saying, listen, it would really help if it looks like I'm on board with not a whole lot. I mean, how how would he he would have to be strategically inept to not make that argument? You know, you always say that the Democrats seem to be able to play this game really well. Wouldn't that be an example? Well, they of
1: that? Do, Yeah, um, no. But I I do, do think that, you know, for example, that that uh, he and Chuck Schumer are, are uh, sitting back uh, uh, after hours saying, hey, uh, hey, look, Joe, um, uh, I want you to uh, hold this up because uh, it's going to make us all look good. Um, I don't think that's the case.
0: No, not make us all look good. Make Manchin look better to his constituents in West Virginia. Now, there are some things in which the the
1: argument, the argument as I understood what you're saying is, well, that helps Schumer in the long run because it's it helps, you know, keep control of the Senate. They don't don't risk losing a Senate seat, Um,
0: which I think they're uh, going to lose
1: anyway. But yeah,
0: yeah that's
1: that's it's possible um, you, you
0: take a look at yeah you but, take a look at mansion's wins unless he becomes an american independent or something like that that he'd been talking about i just don't i just don't see that but that's you know that that's longer term yeah and, and trump
1: trump took west virginia by by some ungodly margin yeah 30 something percent. Uh, and i and yeah. i think I, I think you know I, I, a, a poll i had seen um this is from probably a month or two ago uh, showed that of, of states where uh uh, Joe Biden's like popularity was lowest. It, West Virginia was was the number one yeah uh, uh, state where where he was hurting. So, um, yeah, I I I just I don't think there's 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 that going on. I think it is just a plain old um, one. He's a West Virginia Democrat, like he says, yeah. and he is. Um, uh, it, it's a matter of, of political survival. So.
0: Yeah, and, and not only that, but but political survival, but looking at what his constituents uh, actually want, and also right. his is, own. That's what I mean. It's kind yeah, of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, ideally, it is. It is the same thing. Yeah. And you know, a lot of folks saying that he's you know in the pocket of the of the fossil fuel industry. Well, I mean, I certainly disagree with his stances, but coming his coming from West Virginia, I understand why he is supporting those. And are there some financial issues involved? Yeah. You know, I I think you can certainly you can certainly make that make that case and but again uh, i think of the alternative and the alternative which would seem far more likely in if you look at the numbers is that west virginia has two republican senators you know and and then uh, it's not it's not a case of any of this stuff happening so uh, i'm
1: and, and not just and, and not uh um Not Mitt Romney Republican
0: senators. No, no, like, yeah, really serious, hardcore Republican senators. So, but, um, but again, more more of the Josh Hawley model, probably. Exactly. But again, I think, you know, we're going to look back on this and, and in a few months and say, well, that was that was pretty impressive. And, and I'll point out that, you know, there's generally uh, a very narrow window for these things to happen. You know, for instance, uh, you, you typically get if, if you are fortunate enough to have unified control of government with, by the slimmest of margins, you usually only have it for a couple of years. And so you get you get one crack. Basically, I mean, Obama had uh, the Affordable Care Act and also that uh, the financial bailout kind of legislation, which was sort of, you know, crisis related. Trump had the tax cut and now Biden's going to get, I think, these two things and that's going to be it. But that's sort of that's sort of what you should, you know, what you should expect, I think. Yeah. So so there you go. And and that's going to be I think that this will pretty much be it in terms of major accomplishments for the Biden administration. And uh, maybe that will be enough. Maybe not. I don't know. But, uh, you know, this obviously all ties in to a certain extent, I think, to the elections on Tuesday. And so why don't we turn to that But before we do? We'll just take a quick break and be right back. Okay, Jay, so, you know. There's one year to go, a little less than one year to go, I guess, till the 2022 congressional midterm elections. And a lot of people were looking to last Tuesday's elections as a possible sign of things to come. And the most followed of these elections was, I think, clearly the Virginia governor's race, where polling before the election indicated a pretty tight contest between Democrat Terry McAuliffe, who was governor from 2014 to 2018, and Republican challenger and financial executive Glenn Youngkin, who was making his first bid for elective office. And Youngkin actually ended up winning by 2.5 percent over McAuliffe, which is, I think, sent a lot of folks in the Democratic Party and the media. And I know you'll say they're kind of very related, right, into a uh, kind of a frenzy uh, and a frenzy of uh, overanalyzing, at least uh, kind of in my view on this. But no matter how you look at it, I think it's unquestionable that Last week, uh, not just Virginia, but in a lot of ways, was a good week electorally for Republicans. But before I get into my thoughts on it, uh, what did you take away from Tuesday's elections?
1: So I I will begin with my caveat. And, and this is something I say over all sort of midterm or non, um, non-presidential elections is uh well, I shouldn't say midterm. Uh, I'd say let's call it special elections, yeah. off-year elections.
0: Off-year, there you uh, go. It,
1: yeah, is is that you know there is a temptation to read more into it than is there. Oh yeah. Um, so I, I think that's that's always out there because off-year elections tend to be um, a, a more individualized, right? Uh, there, there are uh, uh, you know it, it turns on campaigns and and. Uh, um the, the politics of the state and the candidates and uh, just as I cautioned the same thing about California right that that people shouldn't read too much into the california recall uh, it as it turned out it was sort of California being California um, so so do do I infer that there is some larger trend bigger wave here um, I'm not going to make that prediction but I think I do want to say something that it's, it's significant in that it's certainly not nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, the bigger piece of this, which is going to become clear down the road. Um, well, let me, let me, let me back up uh, Two, I want to, I would say, uh, Yonkin ran an excellent campaign.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, he did, he did a whole lot, right. Um, in terms of messaging, in terms of of uh, reaching out, uh, in terms of the issues uh, that I don't know whether he chose the issues or the issues chose him, um, but in walking that that line of of keeping you know keeping the, the uh, Trump fans with him, but not embracing Donald Trump, uh, not being caught up in in what McAuliffe was was pitching that this is a a. Trump clone and stuff, which which sort of was pretty implausible on its face, um, but yeah, it's kind of worked in the past. Um, so there, there's there's that too, right? I think I think we we take into account that. Listen, not every candidate is going to uh, do as well as Yonkin did in actually running the campaign and in, in message discipline uh, and so forth. Um, but but three, and this is the the piece I think that's going to matter down the road. Is this this was sort of a change? I, I think that again, I when I was talking to Trey, I, I, I talked about there was just this feeling that, that conservatives have right that have had lately that uh, listen, they're 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 worried, they're scared. I mean, and that's and scared isn't um, I don't think that's that's too big of a, a word to use. Um, when you had things like the Merrick Garland uh, uh you know, school board memo and so forth. Um, that there is just this this increasing reach uh, into into all aspects of your your private life, um, and also throw out the the you know IRS rule that's still pending out there as far as uh, looking at your individual bank accounts. Um, but but that's there, and and the response um, the Democrat playbook had always been, um, well you're racist, and and they they very much tried to play that card in Virginia um uh up even to the uh what I would say absolutely abominable um uh, conduct of the, the so called Lincoln project who have dispersed <laughs> oh, the
0: name yeah. of,
1: of of a great of really a you know probably our greatest president. Um and, and That's that Trump. sort of <laughs> Well no no i I'm, um no I you know if, if people aren't aren't familiar with, with what I'm referring to, this was um you know, the Lincoln project, which arguably um builds it build itself originally as sort of, well, we're, you know, the real Republicans opposing uh Trumpism and so forth. Um uh but now they're just sort of a wing of the Democrat Democratic Party.
0: It's just this um, embarrassing mess of, of sad, self-promoting, awful people, well, it seems yeah, to me, basically. Who, yeah,
1: people yeah, people who are in for the money who stopped getting paid by Republicans yeah. um after they lost. Uh, you know enough races, and now they're they're willing to work for the Democrats. But yeah. staged sort of a a false flag operation of, of guys with tiki torches, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which was reminiscent of the Charlottesville rally, um, and the the, the the McAuliffe campaign. You know, jumped all over it, and
0: um, but so maybe they're anyway, actually working I- for the Republicans. Jay it was a double false flag.
1: Well, <laughs> you
0: know. I, I guess um,
1: it's three-dimensional so I chess. I, again, I don't think the Lincoln Project was really working for the Republicans. No, I, I think they're working
0: <laughs> cash. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, um, but this—all
1: of a sudden, you—you you got this sense um, when uh, Yonkin won, and I didn't think he was going to. Um, that wait a minute, um, uh, you know, think things, and there was this this sense of momentum shift right nationally and i'm just I guess this is just sort of how my uh, emotionally i'm kind of processing it um that all of a sudden the the big the big scary um uh but the, the the spell had been lifted uh if, if you will and I'll, I'll let you go for a walk because i've been going for much too long well, um and then i'll jump back in but
0: well, well well, let me say i wasn't surprised at all that young won. i expected him to win when the polling was even i just i just assume still at this point when when i see any sort of poll uh that i'm going to add a couple two three percent at least to the republican numbers because i still don't think polling organizations have figured out how to most of them at least figured out how to adjust for republican uh you know non-response or conservative non-response and so not only I that think that's
1: right and i, I do the same that's, I so there that's you go right.
0: Not only that, though, but if you take a look at the fundamentals, the media hates fundamentals analysis because it's nothing new. But what we know from decades of history in West Virginia and just larger history of Virginia and just larger history is that in off year, in midterm elections, when when the the party in power especially when it's a, there's an unpopular president and Biden's you know approval is 42.9 and sinking and has been for a while since late August that they're going to do poorly and so anyone who would just look at electoral history and those fundamentals would have to say well yeah Dem- democrats should prepare to not do very well. And, you know, when I saw these ridiculous, this ridiculous hyperbole, I think, from the media, you know, disaster, devastating debacle, I, they like the alliteration, I guess, with Democrats, you know, but I, again, how is this surprising? Especially, I think, when you have a, a candidate like like Mikhailov, who at least at one point just so clearly put his foot in it and, and made like an yeah. ideal soundbite, you know, don't uh, – here's one lesson I pull away. Don't tell parents that they shouldn't interfere with their kids' inter- education. That's not a, that's not a smart right, right. idea, right? And, and that was maybe a verbal slip-up. You know, it was, I'm sure, but well, all of well, that. Well, I don't know. Let's – I mean do- – but, but well, let me let just say, say l- let me you, just. But
1: do you think it was a, ver- a verbal slip up, or it was it was of the sort of the a gaffe is when a politician accidentally tells the truth, you know, or reveals their real feelings.
0: You know, I, I think it's hard to say. But look, let me just before we get to that, I just want to yeah. emphasize the larger point that what I think the media does a poor job, of, and people do as well, is they tend to look at idiosyncratic factors to understand why people want or lost. They ran a good campaign or they ran a bad campaign. But, you know, as a political scientist, I say, well, sure, that can matter at the margins. But what accounts for most of what we see are these larger factors, the state of the economy, these, you know, these big things that individual candidates can't really control. I'm not saying that campaigns don't matter, but I'm saying they, number one, there's a lot of research and a lot of history that shows that they matter a lot less than people think. But those differences in terms of how much they matter are overemphasized by the media because they want something to cover. And so that I think is a really important background for people to kind of keep in mind when we think about this, and also when we think about what I see what I see to be the inevitable losses for Democrats in the midterms.
1: Yeah. So, well, that's interesting because you're 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 sort of taking a little bit of the, um, again for people foundation fans, um, uh, Harry Seldon mathematical, uh, psychohistory, uh, approach, um.
0: Your recommendation. Do weeks it,
1: ago. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, I recommended that a while ago, and I, and I still do. Um, but um, I, I think almost uh, mm-hmm. the, to me, I'm, I'm seeing it almost the the opposite way. Um, and and it comes down to there's sort of some big theories in in um, in history and in politics that this is bigger than for us to get into one day. But one, but one is sort of the great man theory, right? That that there are these uh, incredible individuals who. Uh, make events and change events and change the course of history. And the other is more as, as you would point out, there are larger historical forces and there are people who sort of rise and fall, uh, uh according to them, um, but are necessarily outside of their control. And, and I, I think the truth probably lies somewhere in between. Yes. Um, you know, and that's, that's probably not fair to a big philosophical debate to just say, yeah, it's probably in, in between, but, um, <laughs> that's for another day.
0: Um, But But let me say, on Jay, on that, let me say on that, that that you're not necessarily saying that it's right in between. I think, you know, I think people can differ in saying which is more uh, predictive. And I would certainly, I would certainly say that, well, I think it's largely these bigger factors, but certainly individuals can come on the stage and make a a real difference. And I think Donald Trump is a prime example of that.
1: Yeah. Um, Although, I mean, again, if you're, if you're really smart, if you're really smart in the bigger waves. Harry Seldon type uh, logic. It's sort of you would say, well, the math would predict a Donald Trump at some point, Uh, whether it's whether it's Donald Trump himself or just someone else like him. Yeah. Um, But that setting that aside, um, uh, the uh, so now I lost myself. I'm. I'm, (laughs) Well, well,
0: but while you're while you're coming, let let me just let me just say on the uh, uh, education, and this obviously ties into the critical race theory thing, right? Because that's that's what the education issue was sort of branded as. And I think Republicans did a really good job of that. And, you know, I want to point out on that. It seems to me what Democrats can take away from that is one lesson is don't don't try to be nuanced on this critical race theory issue. It seems to me that it doesn't matter if people don't actually know what critical race theory means, because most people, you know, don't. Uh, It doesn't matter that it's not actually being taught in public schools. And it doesn't matter if you think it should be taught in public schools. I think if you're a Democrat running for office and this comes up, you say something like, like uh, people have a lot of different ideas about what critical race theory is. But I think that, Kids should be given the facts about history of of race in the United States without any bias or without any attempt to indoctrinate them into a specific view. And I that's that's where I would begin and end my discussion of critical race theory. And I a- think, Amen. You know, amen.
1: And and you would have, I think, that would have uh, that would have been a much much better response than. Um, we're in charge of, of you know <laughs> you have no say over what your kids learn
0: because yeah and you know I think I think the more nuanced and dangerous approach says well I think it's healthy to teach critical race theory as a perspective say like, no maybe it is in fact you know I I agree that it that it is at least it, it shouldn't be indoctrinated but it's reasonable to teach it as a perspective but. Why? Why go into those waters where you're just? You know, there are landmines. There, there are landmines. There are, there, are, there are mines everywhere in those waters. Yeah, that would be weird. All over the place. Yeah, ex- exactly. So that, that to me is just. There should be a clear. And I think the Democrats, most Democrats, are going to learn that lesson from this. And because education, understandably, for people who have kids, and a lot of people have kids, that's you, know, you you're, you're messing with my kids' education. You're telling me I can't mess with it. That's that's a great issue for Republicans, and I think Democrats maybe have learned that sort of playing the race card, as you put it, and I agree on this issue, again, regardless of whether or not you think that's the right thing, electorally, that is not going to be a great strategy.
1: Yeah, and so, and this is, um, again, I could, you know, this is one of these things, Mike, I was I was doing a lot of driving the last couple of days, Um and I, in my head, I have all these sort of discussions with you. Of, oh, this is what I'm going to say. Uh-huh, and then me I, too, and yeah. <laughs> blank on it. And then, or things take a different direction. But um, no, I, I think you're you're exactly right. And I've said this a lot of times that the the strategy of um, calling the voters a bunch of racist morons just doesn't seem to work. Uh, you know, it, it's, you know, the, you're all a bunch of racist morons. Why won't these racist morons vote for us? You yeah. know? Um and, and I do think that's a lot of what what happened. And, and there was a, a smugness, right, uh, that, that comes from that. And on the critical race theory, um, you know, sort of arose by any, any other name. Um, I think there is this this weird hang up of of, well, is this critical race theory or, or isn't it? Um, who cares? I, I think the, the response is parents know they see these these lessons that their kids are being taught and about, um, you know, uh, the white kids should identify themselves as oppressors and, and so forth. And, and these these verse and, and, and you you've seen them out there, too. And you see the textbook saying, well, this is, uh, you know, everything needs to be viewed through the lens of, of race uh, and the sort of the 1619 curriculum and so forth. And, and whether that's technically critical race theory or not. It's it's something that that parents find objectionable and I find objectionable uh, for a whole lot of reasons. And then to get the response of, oh, you moron, you don't even know what critical race theory is. Uh, and, you know, and your, your 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 critical race theory is almost if I were to sum it up. almost Right. Uh, it's sort of the the theory that, uh, look, even if you think you're not a racist, uh, you really are. You're just too stupid to know it. Um and again, that's not a winning political message.
0: No. Um, and again, I, and, I think, you know, I think there's a case to be made for presenting it in such a way as, well, here is what some people believe and here's yeah. why. But that's, you're well, right. Like I, I would say, especially at the
1: college level. Yeah. Right? I think it's something different there than as opposed to k through 12 absolutely you know especially especially in the the k end of it right yeah
0: yeah definitely and you're right in some instances there have been instances where it seems like this is just being treated as a theory in the same way that evolution is treated as a theory but yeah but of course we know this is true but we'll call it a theory but so yeah I, i object to that i object to that as well so i think we're kind of even though you and I certainly differ in the extent to which we believe that uh, that sort of unconscious racism and, and systemic bias is a, is a, is a real thing. Uh, I think we both agree that politically kind of focusing on that as a, as an issue is, is bad for Democrats and good for Republicans, you
1: right. know, which, which would, which that brings me to the other point I wanted to make um, on that Virginia election. Uh, and, and this is, this is the one that again, down the road, Will be more important than Glenn Yonkin. and that is Winsome Sears, uh, mm-hmm. who was elected uh, lieutenant governor. Um, uh, oddly enough, and Virginia's got a lot of weird, uh, weird ways of doing things, um, which we should mention in a minute. But uh, Winsome Sears, who is a Jamaican immigrant, uh, a woman of color, a uh, uh, former—I guess you're never a former marine, right, Mike? That's right. Um, <laughs> That's right. A, a, a marine uh, ran um, uh, uh, the outreach for the homeless. I, did, I mean, she's done a, a lot. It really had an outstanding, shocking. I mean, you know, you 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 look at this person and you say, "Wow, this is this is a truly impressive person." Um, one uh, in Virginia, and one against the 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 winds of, of Democrats who were telling anyone who would vote for Glenn Youngkin. And I'm guessing that the the overlap between Glenn Youngkin voters and Winsome Sears voters was probably close to 100. Um, percent That they are, uh, you know, racist, yeah. and and that's you know, or they're white, not, or even worse than ra- racist, right? They're they're white supremacists. Yeah, and and, and yeah. if you look at the vote turned out, uh, you elected a, a black uh, immigrant um, woman. As, as the lieutenant governor, these white supremacists—that's who they voted for—and uh, they also a, um, a Hispanic um, or Latino um, uh, attorney general. Uh, that again, these—that's—that's—that was the white supremacist candidate of choice. Whereas in this bizarre world, the the anti-racists, as they call themselves, were supporting a former attorney general who dressed up either in blackface or as a Klansman. Not sure which. Can't really remember. Um, and, and I mean, it, it's just this this bizarre sort of backwards world. And that's when I say sort of that the spell was lifted a little bit. Right. And and there was this crack of light that people said, no, this is this being called a racist all the time. This resort to uh, everything I don't like is is racism or white supremacy. Uh, every Republican candidate is a January 6th rioter. Um, that's that's sort of the the light of hope that I took that that. You know what I mean? We're not we're we're not at the end of of the fight yet, but it's kind of the, that part in the third act where um, it, it things look really dark, uh, uh, and and you're like, oh man, how are we going to get out of this one? Um, and and then it's you know Gandalf and the Riders of Rohan kind of charging down the hill with the sun rising behind them, right? Or, or it's in in aliens where uh, the second one, uh, where you think the um, uh, the android guy took off with the ship and abandoned them, and then you know you see the ship rising up behind them. Um, I, I was coming up with all these like cinematic, um, uh, yeah, nice uh, metaphors for 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 this, but there is that that it, um, you know when when. Again, Thanos has shown up and is crushing everybody and and all of it. it's like and the guy that that you thought was dead from from two scenes before shows up again, right? And Doctor Strange opens the portals and all the people who got zapped start pouring out and um it, it was it was to me that sort of moment uh that that you you sort of forget it's coming and I think um with the 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 Virginia election and including the Winsome Sears part of it um that's sort of taken away that sting of the, oh, you're all white supremacists.
0: See, you know, I'm, I, I see what you're saying, and I agree to a, to a large extent. I'm more frustrated than relieved in the sense that when everything is called racist, then it's easy to just sort of dismiss racism in general. And so I actually think that that, is, that does harm to the larger yeah. cause of identifying and fighting real racism, which I believe is a serious and ongoing problem in American society. And so that, that's the first, I mean, it, it might, you know, ties into my general frustration with extremists of, of all sides. But so I, I don't i don't disagree with you. My feelings are a little bit different. And I, I'll also say that moving away from the race issue, you know, I think another lesson is don't overreach just in general. I mean, even the New York Times editorial board thinks that this is a real concern. A Thursday, they had an editorial and they wrote, The concerns of more centrist Americans about a rush to spend taxpayer money, a rush to grow the government, should not be dismissed. That's the New York Times editorial board, Jay. That's crazy. You know, so, yeah. And I think I get before the, it before
1: their their position had always been that it should be dismissed. Yeah, you know, but, well, I mean, I, I but, but it I, should be dismissed because you're racist. But.
0: Well, but but I think that's, you know, I get I get the impulse because Democrats understand that, you know, come January 2023, they're not going to be able to do basically anything. That's going to be it for the Biden presidency. That's when the investigations start and the legislation grinds to a halt and judge judicial conference, all that. That's that's just done, right? So they need to get as much as they can while they can. And so it's easy in that environment to try to do too much. I mean, there's sort of this balance between political capital is there to be spent, because if you just keep on, you know, holding on to it. Well, you don't get anything done. And I think it's easy to err on the side of trying to go for a little bit too much. And so I think Democrats maybe are learning this certainly. I mean, Joe Manchin has been saying this from the beginning, but a lot of Democrats, I think, are coming to understand this, which is why I think we saw the result with the infrastructure and build back better, because a number of folks in the party in in Congress said, "Okay, well, um, geez, we need to really kind of get something done. And we can't overreach on this because we're going to get pounded for it even more than we probably will be. So so I think that's an important lesson. Uh, And you mentioned this uh, as well earlier. Uh, Don't my one lesson I draw is don't run against Trump if Trump's not on the ballot. I think that's a Yeah. I mean, Hillary Clinton did that, tried that in 2016. Right. And that didn't work out well for her, certainly. And and so I think that kind of combines to me with another lesson I picked up. And this has longer term implications as well, is that Democrats shouldn't underestimate Donald Trump and his political team. Um, You know, Trump seems to have been made to realize, I guess, that he has a better chance in 2024. If he can go easier on those sort of demands of you will bow before the big lie election, big lie sort of thing and just be completely, you know, unquestionably in my corner. And this was to me, this is really smart on Donald Trump and the Trump political team's. Side, I'm impressed that they got him to be able to kind of pull back because he certainly did he He was okay with you know not with with not being invited to come and support you know uh, Youngkin and that sort of thing and it's not hard for me to envision a scenario in which enough Republicans and Republican leaners basically become convinced that January sixth was not that big of a deal and you know even if Some of Donald Trump's supporters were eh, overly zealous. That doesn't really reflect on Trump himself so much. And considering the alternative, whether it's going to be Biden or Harris, it's better to vote for Trump, who, you know, after all, the constitutional order is still standing. And uh, I mean, I even got a sense of that with you, Jay. Honestly, I remember a couple of months ago, I asked you, would you vote for Donald Trump again? And you said no. But then when you were on with Trev, it's like, well, Probably not. And I think there's going to be more of that as time goes by. And so it's easier and easier, especially with these signs that Trump is sort of, I think, being more strategic. It's it's becoming much easier, to my great dismay, for me to see, you know, in January of 2025, Donald Trump taking the oath again.
1: See, well, to me, I think sort of the opposite lesson uh, okay. from Virginia uh, in that. Uh, the Yonkin victory tells other candidates, you don't need Donald Trump out there stumping for you, um, in order to win. Now you don't, you don't want him against you.
0: Certainly Um, not. No, you have to kind of manage him in that way. I mean, look,
1: ideally you don't want anybody against you, right? Um, uh, except maybe the Lincoln project. Um, (laughs) but (laughs) so, but, um. Uh, yeah i i so i think there's there's that lesson there that that i think other candidates would look at and say well you know what i don't i don't have to you know be campaigning with donald trump and and uh, kissing the ring and uh all of that uh i can i can run as uh, what what you would say in in any other year a sort of traditional republican uh type type thing now there are a couple other pieces that again you and i would disagree on the you know you're the sweep of history and i'm i'm maybe looking more at uh, what actually happens? Um, the facts on the ground type type thing. Uh, Yonkin's position as a a first time politician uh, also allowed him maybe some more space yeah. from Donald Trump, as opposed to someone who is a party member uh, had had necessarily been on board with endorsing him as he was the president and so forth. So, so yeah, that's what I mean. A, a candidate like Yonkin maybe has a little more breathing room than someone who say has been in office for years and was in office throughout the Trump presidency.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think you're right about that. So if we think about again, how this, what this portends, if, if anything, I think some for, for the midterms, you know, I, when I look at, again, those big, uh, larger factors, right, and I think there are a number of things right now that are a big drag on Democrats. COVID, obviously, the supply chain issues, the shortages, right, inflation, uh, and, and still the fact that these bills, well, the infrastructure was just passed, but Build Back Better has not yet been passed. But I think if we kind of, Push forward into the summer of 2022, and that's really when the election, the midterm election season is going to start in earnest. I mean, I my prediction is that inflation will be down, though there will still be a ways to go. It's not going to be at that 2%. I think that supply chain issues will probably be a little bit better. COVID should be less of an issue. Uh, Infrastructure, we know that passed. Build Back Better, I think, will have passed. And those benefits, though, I think Democrats who think that, well, once those are passed, people are going to be like, wow, this is great. I mean, these are over a decade. Nothing's
1: really shovel ready.
0: No, it's going to take years for these things to really be felt. And. So, again, even though a lot of these headwinds are going to be lessened for Democrats, I think I'm still not optimistic because if you take, again, if you take a look at those historical factors, it's almost guaranteed that the the party in power, they're going to lose some seats in the midterms. And not only that, but it's it's not just the House where I think Republicans are looking to pick up a dozen or more seats, uh, would be my guess at this point. But you look at the Senate. Now, most of those Senate elections, relatively safe seats, even though Republicans are defending more seats than Democrats, there are only really four races, that seem to me, that are going to be kind of toss-up competitive. And in three of those, Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia, they're currently held by Democrats. Pennsylvania is the fourth one. Um, so it, I, I totally— I mean, I expect in January 2023, the House has a solid Republican majority. There's a 52, 51, 52 Republicans in the Senate. And then I think it would be weird. It would be implausible not to think that there would be all sorts of investigations of the Biden administration. And, you know, again, legislative progress uh, just grinds to a complete halt. And that, I think, is going to set the stage. For, uh, you know, a potential Trump comeback in 2024, because at least to me, given how the Republican primary process is structured, Donald Trump has to be the favorite, assuming his health and energy and so forth hold out. And and so, I mean, if I if I had to bet, I, I would say that there's a there's a totally reasonable chance that Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States.
1: Um, I don't. I'm not. I'm not willing to go that far at this point. Um, I, I certainly agree with you on the midterms. Yeah. Right. Uh, in terms of one, the the big historical sweep, and you lose seats uh, in and off year. And this is what I wanted to go back to, just because this is a fun little fact that I just learned last week uh, with the Virginia governor's election. Virginia governors, Mike, don't uh, cannot run for two consecutive terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you know that? Maybe you did know that. I did not know that. So on the one on the one hand, every every Virginia gubernatorial race is is in, to some extent an open seat. Um, you can have someone who was governor before, like Terry McAuliffe, but you don't have an actual incumbent running. And and the second weird thing is the timing is that Virginia's governor is always elected the year after the presidential election, uh, which again is is just a little. A little weird. A lot of governors are, are elected in, in off years, but but the first year just seems seems sort of weird. So I, I just thought that was like a, a funny curiosity thing that I did not know about Virginia is also that there was a lieutenant governor separately elected. Um, but going back to the yeah, the bigger sweep of history stuff. Yeah, I, I think that the party in power usually loses loses seats. Um and as you you are correct, in all the uh, the headwinds, I think inflation will still be high um, going in the next summer. Uh, I don't see the supply chain stuff getting getting sorted out uh, in any meaningful way uh, by then for a whole lot of reasons. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's you're 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 right on there. Now I don't necessarily make that that final step of saying therefore Donald Trump will be the next president, but. But maybe well, that's, therefore that's, that's a prediction for another day.
0: Yeah, maybe you'll go so far to say therefore, especially considering how party primaries work. Therefore, it it certainly eases the path toward a Donald Trump renomination.
1: Yeah, I think so. But yeah. but keep in mind also the the primaries. I mean, we haven't started there, and and I would say in most of these states, whoever the the Trump candidate is. Uh, probably has the inside track on winning that primary. Yeah, um, but again, the Yonkin example says something, right? And, and it, it's not—it's not a lesson that's going to be be absorbed every place, and it, and it wouldn't work every place. Um, but I think there are going to be candidates who say, "Yeah, I, you know, I can—I can be lukewarm on Trump. I don't have to be." You know, for like example, in Ohio, in the Ohio Senate primary right now, it's it's the competition to who can out Trump Trump. Yeah. Um. Uh, I I don't know that that necessarily is going to going work. And plus, when these folks get in the general elections, uh, there are places where, uh, you know, look in 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 solid red states. Okay, the, the Trumpian uh, person probably cruises to victory no matter what. Um. In in less uh, red states, like in Arizona, for example. Uh, I don't know that that's the case, right? And Arizona also just has its weird uh, Barry Goldwater, John McCain, Maverick streak type thing. Um, so, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm I agree that the Trumpian candidates would have the inside track. I don't necessarily think um, does that translate to a Trump friendly environment in 2020.
0: Yeah, maybe. maybe. I I'm, mean, I'm not. See, my my we'll thinking say. is in part. What, what I see happening uh, a little, in a little more detail is uh, once the House and probably the Senate are, again, controlled by Republicans, I, I think you agree that, that the investigation machinery will kick in as it has. This is just what happens. Right. Yes. When, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and so I think then the narrative is going to be the it, it will be the Biden-Harris administration because they're going to be looking to 2024. The the incredible corruption of the Biden Harris administration, regardless well, of we, we are
1: going we are going to learn a lot about um, the art world and art sales yeah, I anticipate. But, but,
0: but I mean regardless of the specifics, that's going to be the narrative, which I think makes sense to set about sort of set up the sort of whataboutism type of thing, saying, sure, Donald Trump was corrupt, maybe, did some stuff, maybe, played fast and loose with the Constitution, maybe, but So does, so does, you know, so did Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And so therefore weighing that, well, you know, Trump's going to cut taxes and, you know, build a wall and be against critical race theory. So I'm OK. But but so would most any. But so would most any other Republican candidate. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But
1: and I guess that's that's the way I look at it is the longer Donald Trump is is out of office, um, the less he matters See, and I, would I believe- think you could also you could also have a situation where there are plenty of uh people who, let's say, they run um for the Senate or or House in the in 2022, and use you know ride in on the Donald Trump coattails. But by 2024, again, maybe you don't need Trump as much as as you think you need him.
0: I, I agree with that, but but I also think or at least I think that's plausible. But I also again go back to sort of fundamentals and structures and given what we know about primary voters and how much more extreme and committed they are. And given that that's sort of Donald Trump's base in the party and, and given his huge fundraising apparatus and his, and his, you know, pretty significant, uh, super PAC organization, leadership pack organization. It just, it just seems to me that, uh, that he is, if he wants, assuming again his health and his energy hold out and he wants to, this is basically, it's going to be in 2024, his nomination to lose. And he just will come into it just so much stronger than anyone else. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. I know we both hope that's not the case to, for, you know, yeah. or for, for somewhat similar reasons, but, but yeah, we, we will definitely see. Hey, you know, before we close today, I I was saying I was saying to you, Jay, before before the before the show yesterday, actually, that I've been off for for two weeks and my recommendations are stacking up like cargo containers at the Long Beach port. And so there are a few things I would like to uh, like to recommend, actually. And one of them you will appreciate, Jay, is uh, Democracy in America uh, by Alexis de Tocqueville. I just finished uh, rereading. I do
1: appreciate that.
0: Now, I had a copy of it for, for forever, but it had been, you know, it's one of those books that you have on your shelf, maybe. It's more, I think, admired than actually read, and...
1: it's like you read portions of it when you're in college and then yeah Yeah.
0: well i i assigned the entire thing to my class uh for better or for worse and it's you know 700 and something pages and in, in all honesty it reminded me in some points of kind of like a stephen king or tom clancy saying like god this guy could have used a little bit of editing that's not really how it worked back then it would have been a much tighter 500 pages but yeah it might have lost some of its charm but but generally speaking, uh, it, there's a reason why it is a classic and there is a lot one can take away from it. And the nice thing about it is the way it's structured in terms of the parts in the chapters, chapters only tend to be a few pages. And there are, you don't necessarily have to read it through from cover to cover. I would suggest starting at the beginning. Right. But
1: Mike, you should, you should tell the story for people who aren't familiar necessarily.
0: The, the story help me out here.
1: Well, with, with what, it, what it's about, what,
0: well, it, it's, yeah, it's this, and- this, this French nobleman is given a commission to go to the United States in 1835 to study the. The prison system basically and he stays there for Tocqueville stays there for about 10 months or so he decides he is going to be much more broad in his views and it's essentially a study it's not really written on journalism yeah well yeah. it's not written for Americans it was written really for Europeans saying hey here's this new this newish thing this democracy in America and uh, he basically compares it to uh the 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 benefits and the drawbacks of aristocratic systems. And he ends up sort of having kind of a two cheers for democracy type of American democracy sort of thing. There's a lot he admires about America and he, he thinks that democracy overall is better than the European aristocratic system. But he also believes that there are some important things that are lost. And I think that, uh, we're we're all. Uh, I think there's a lot of democratic boosterism, and for good reasons. But I think Tocqueville makes some really important points about uh, about kind of, well conservative. Uh, aristocratic arguments for things that actually are lost in sort of a pell mell push toward complete equality and democracy, and not to say that we shouldn't move in those directions, and certainly that it wasn't a good thing to move in those directions, and, and, and given where we were in 1835 and 1840 when he wrote parts one and two, but that you know we should look at these things well critically. You know, uh, and so critical democratic theory, if you will, I think it's kind of an example of that. And it's really it gave me some things to think about. It reminded me of what drew me to conservatism as a political philosophy in the first place. And I recommend that everyone at least, you know, pick it. it's, It's public domain. You can find all sorts of free versions of it and at least, you know, page through it because there's a lot of wisdom in that book. A lot of things that should, you know, uh, I think are worth uh, thinking about. So, yeah, that's my recommendation for this week.
1: So that's a good one. Um, My recommendation, uh, and I I may have recommended uh, this writer in in various uh, aspects before, but I I think the uh, Kevin Williamson is the greatest writer operating in the English language uh, today. Um, He writes a lot for National Review, uh, but he, he has a book uh, that was sort of a, a um, uh, compilation of a lot of his columns, um, which is uh, Big White Ghetto, uh, which I recommend. Uh, but more more fun, um, because he is, it, it is pretty much short form type, type journalism, uh, is he has a newsletter called The Tuesday that you can sign up for and you get every Tuesday. Uh, in your inbox, a, a column from Kevin Williamson. Uh, and he is always fun and entertaining. Uh, and he also does a lot on language and linguistics, which is something that I, I'm just sort of a, a geek for. Um, but if if you're in Williamson also, it's kind of interesting. He, he does, he no longer identifies himself as a Republican uh, in part because of Trump, in part because of, of other things. Uh, but uh, he is, he is very much a, a, a Fresh Voice on the Right, uh, and just, just a lot of fun to read. So. Hey,
0: well, you know, and I am familiar with Big White Ghetto, and you know why. J.J. generously yeah. uh, gave me a copy of Big White Ghetto, and and Williamson, I agree, is a, is, a, is a interesting writer, well worth reading, even if you don't agree with him. I wasn't aware of the Tuesday newsletter. So I'm going to sign up for that. Uh, so would you say that you you enjoy Williamson now more than Jonah Goldberg?
1: I I was so okay and in, in in some ways like Jonah Goldberg is is more like I feel like sort of almost a peer like I feel like I could hang out with Jonah Goldberg. He
0: reminds um, me of you um, in Jonah, so many Jonah, ways. And Jonah if you're listening
1: I'm 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 up <laughs> I'm forever whatever. Um I've met Jonah Goldberg at one, at one point. He autographed a book for me. But um uh no, I mean I I feel but uh Kevin Williamson is just sort of like on the next level, right? Um uh of, of and, and again that's that's no offense to, to Jonah Goldberg um who I but but as a writer right who I and very much I I do admire Jonah Goldberg as as a writer um but uh Kevin Williamson is just sort of uh, I I think uh, and again next next level um uh, and, and has that same sort of, I mean, Mike, this is what I aspire to. It's almost this, this grasp of the big historical stuff and the, the references to, uh, you know, you know, you can refer to Shakespeare, Plutarch, um, uh, uh, Tocqueville and, and all the, the big names, but then also this, this wonderful sort of like earthiness and, yeah. and a pop culture understanding and and getting how it all really kind of fits together,
0: I see what you're saying. Goldberg is much more on the kind of on that pop culture kind of earthiness yeah, level. Yeah, You can bring some of that in, whereas Williamson is maybe a mix that you kind of you find more aspirational. Okay. Yeah, yeah and that, not I mean, again. That's that's no offense to John no, Goldberg. not at all. I mean, I just, yeah, not at all. They're they're both well worth reading. Like I said, I you know for years I've been a huge fan of Goldberg, and and I will add the Williamson Tuesday newsletter to it. So I appreciate that recommendation. All right. So you know, we there was so much. That we didn't get to. We want to talk about the international climate conference and two really important uh, Supreme Court cases that went for oral arguments this week: the New York gun control law and the Texas abortion bill, as well as the Senate's filibuster of the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And we will get to that on the bonus show, which Jay and I will be recording in just a minute, and that will be available to supporters. Well, by the time you can hear this, and so if you're not a supporter, Patreon.com slash You can sign up to become a supporter. And again, if you'd just like to get that bonus show, but you can't afford to support the show, send me an email, mike at and I will make that happen. Something that doesn't cost anything and that really matters to us is subscribing to the show. So if you haven't, we really appreciate that. Leaving ratings and reviews on the podcast app of your choice. And especially if you would share episodes on social media. If you want to get in touch with us for whatever reason, you can do that on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find links in the show notes, as well as our email, mail at politicsguys.com. And as always, a special thanks to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.